Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Previously on The Dropout, we heard bombshell testimony from a Pfizer scientist who spoke of the doctored document prosecutors say Theranos showed investors and others to lure them in. When you see an actual doctored document with your own two eyes, I mean, that's almost impossible to rebut. And so this was a huge moment for the government. And high-profile investors who put millions of dollars into Theranos took the stand. It's a huge deal to transition from rosy forecasts to lies about what you can do. This week, we hear from a man with deep connections to many of the central players in Elizabeth's orbit and learn that fake Pfizer memo wasn't the only document Theranos falsified. Suddenly this week, we now are seeing that Theranos did the same doctoring on a report with Shearing Plow. The defense might have been able to wiggle their way out of one of the reports, but now that there's two of them, that's a hard battle for them to contest. Recurring themes in the prosecution's questioning are beginning to emerge, and experts show us it's all part of a greater plan. From ABC Audio, this is The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on trial. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, your host. It's good to be back. Episode 12, Patterns. Nine weeks into the criminal trial of Elizabeth Holmes, we've now heard from dozens of witnesses. Elizabeth's colleagues, board members, investors, clients, scientists, accountants, corporate executives. And it's impossible not to feel the repetition. Many of the same details have been shared over and over again by people from all different angles, all caught somewhere in Elizabeth's world. If you think you've heard the same thing a few times, imagine what the jury is thinking. And that's the point, according to Santa Clara University law professor Ellen Kreitzberg, who's been following the case with us since the early days. That strategy of asking the same questions over again, of having very short, precise answers to these questions, allows the jury to appreciate and understand and remember this information more easily. And quite frankly, once you start hearing things more than once with the same answer, it has a sense or a ring of truth and accuracy to it simply through its repetition. Which brings us to Dan Mosley, who took the stand this week. Mosley's name may not sound as familiar as some of the others in this story, but his role, connecting Elizabeth to some of the biggest checks her company ever received from investors, is pivotal. Mosley is an attorney who personally invested $6 million in the blood testing startup in late 2014. 
But thanks to Mosley's relationships, Elizabeth was able to raise about $400 million for her company. Mr. Mosley was a lawyer who, either because they were his clients or because he just knew them in social circles, had a who's who of wealthy families who had family foundations that invested in companies. And it was Mr. Mosley who connected these individuals to Elizabeth Holmes. Mosley testified that he spent a little over 30 years as an attorney at Cravath, Swain, and Moore. During his tenure at the highly prestigious law firm where he worked in trusts and estates, Mosley happened to work with another key figure in this story, Theranos attorney David Boys. When Mosley began considering whether to invest in Theranos, he picked up the phone and called his old legal buddy, Boys, whom he'd known since 1987. According to Mosley, Boys said the technology was absolutely sound and performing well. But Boys wasn't Mosley's only connection to Theranos. Mosley first came to know of the blood testing startup through his client, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Dr. Kissinger explained to me that he was on the board of Theranos, Mosley testified, and that it was a very interesting company. He said it would be terrific if you would take the time to learn about the company and give me your views on it, which is exactly what Mosley did. Mosley told the court, in his first conversation with Elizabeth, she suggested she was looking for a few investors that were high-quality families. What did Mosley mean by high-quality families, asked Prosecutor Jeffrey Shank. Perhaps families and companies that were engaged in commerce in the U.S., Mosley explained. If bringing families and companies engaged in commerce to the Theranos table was one of Elizabeth's goals, she'd hit the jackpot with Mosley. Not only did he represent Dr. Kissinger, but Mosley was also an attorney for the Waltons, the family behind Walmart, the largest retailer in the world. The Coxes, the billionaires behind media empire Cox Enterprises, and the DeVos family office, which included former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. According to Ethan Kurtzweil, a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, who spent the last 13 years investing in Silicon Valley, the fact Elizabeth sought out this group could have been a red flag in and of itself. These are prominent people. These are smart people in other contexts. But while they sounded good on paper, were the wrong people to make any kind of informed judgments on medical technology. Trying to get money and support from prominent people but that don't have any relevant expertise is a failure mode for companies. And the fact that they were actually advertising it as a sign of strength and as something that indicated that they were onto something was a double red flag. Kurtzweil, who mostly focuses on companies in the live streaming gaming content business, didn't invest in Theranos, and he wasn't approached to. But he certainly heard rumblings about the company and Elizabeth. Well, it was like the hottest company around, you know, before they had even shared anything about what they were doing or what their technology could enable. You heard about this promise of this young dropout from Stanford, you know, going to revolutionize the healthcare testing industry. Dan Mosley was sold from his first conversation with Elizabeth, writing to her in September 2014, I could not be more impressed with what you've accomplished. Elizabeth followed up by sending Mosley a packet of materials, documents she was asked about in her 2017 SEC deposition. 
did you have an understanding in 2014 that certain materials were provided to Dan Mosley in connection with his potential investment in Theranos? What materials were those? I don't remember specifically. I know that he had access to a number of documents that we sent documents to him. Elizabeth may not have been able to remember specifically in that deposition, but by now, you could probably guess what some of the materials included in Mosley's packet were. There were articles, including the now infamous fortune piece by Roger Parloff. There were the claims that Theranos made it possible to run any laboratory test from a micro sample of blood and could generate results in less than an hour. According to Mosley's testimony, the materials presented Theranos' technology as already working flawlessly. The document said Theranos had plans for international expansion, and the company was focused on contracts with pharmaceutical and military clients. Just as these grand claims resonated with others, they sounded enticing to Mosley, too. The idea that Theranos was working with pharmaceutical clients, big, sophisticated companies, and the military lent the blood testing startup credibility. Plus, there was that doctored Pfizer document. Prosecutor Shank showed it to the court yet again because it was also included in Mosley's packet. Was this Pfizer report important to you in your decision to invest? Shank asked. It was, Mosley confirmed. Who did you think wrote this report? Asked Shank. Pfizer, Mosley replied. Why did you think that? Asked Shank. It's got the Pfizer logo on the top left of it. And I think that it's on every page. Of course, as we learned in previous episodes, Pfizer did not write the report. Theranos did, and then slapped the pharma giant's logo up top. In her deposition with the SEC, Elizabeth even admitted it was written by Theranos. Um, I believe Theranos drafted the Pfizer document. Why did you include these reports in investor materials? Um, in general, we were trying to communicate with investors about the broad potential of the technology. So in other words, the reports, in a way, gave credibility to uh, the functionality and the accuracy of Theranos's manufactured devices. I, I don't, I've never thought about it like that. But as Mosley testified, the conclusions in the document read as if Pfizer wrote them. Anyone who looks at it would believe, as the investors did, that Pfizer had accepted, written, or approved of the contents of the report. According to Mosley, that supposed Pfizer report especially gave him confidence in the investment. After reading over the materials, Mosley testified he put together his own analysis for Dr. Kissinger. Writing to the former Secretary of State, the conclusions in the Pfizer study report are extraordinarily complementary and validate the Theranos technology and its applications. Having reviewed the documentation sent to him by Theranos, Mosley told Dr. Kissinger, there does not appear to be any sign of any question about the quality, accuracy, or reliability of Theranos's blood testing technology. The information supporting these conclusions is substantial. In his notes to Dr. Kissinger, Mosley also listed a set of risks. It was one of the risks that the founder would not be accurate in her descriptions of the company to you, Prosecutor Shank asked. It's not one of the risks listed here, responded Mosley. I really didn't at the time believe that was a risk. Mosley would go on to introduce Elizabeth to many of his extremely affluent clients, including Rob Walton, 
then chairman of Walmart, and his son-in-law, Greg Penner, who would eventually become chairman. Elizabeth discussed her interest in the family during her SEC deposition. And I think my first contact with them was with Greg Penner, um, who's the, the chairman at Walmart. He, he was one, certainly one of the families that, as we brainstormed on who were the, the types of people that would want to be part of taking something like this on, um, that, that we thought about. The Walton family is one of the, the great, you know, sort of family-controlled businesses that's mm -hmm. been built in this country. Did, did Greg Penner introduce you to Alice Walton? I, I believe Dan Mosley was the point person for Alice. I, I met Alice um, at, at a dinner uh, separately. I think she was sitting near me. Um, did you ever meet Rob Walton? I did. What, what, what do you recall about that? Um, I recall telling him about the technology we were working to implement. Um, and I recall initially focusing on you know, what this could be if we did have the opportunity at some point to partner with Walmart. And then later he became an investor. Mosley also connected Elizabeth to members of the Cox family and helped them facilitate a trip to see her in California. He was also the connector for the Agnelli family behind Fiat, the Oppenheimers, heirs to the De Beers diamond fortune, and the Niarchos family, heirs of the Greek shipping magnet Stavros Niarchos. Theranos, in turn, presented itself as a kind of special opportunity to these high net worth families. Here's venture capitalist Ethan Kurtzweil. She went to folks that don't necessarily have access to a lot of these types of opportunities. And so she played a lot on their fear of missing out, that they weren't necessarily going to get a lot of these chances. If you're somebody in Silicon Valley that you know, sees a dozen investments a day, it's a lot harder to have that. FOMO than somebody where this is presented to you as a special opportunity, I think that's harder to then say, I should just dismiss that. Uh, it felt like a very special chance that may not come around again. And that's probably why folks weren't as rigorous as they should have been. And it worked. Elizabeth secured $400 million in investments from these extremely elite families. Lance Wade began his cross-examination by building up Mosley's credentials. Mosley had come from one of the most distinguished law firms in the country. He'd spent years creating trusts for the most powerful families in the world. And Mosley had earned his own fortune large enough to personally invest $6 million with Theranos. The defense is working hard to show Mr. Mosley as a relatively unappealing individual. He's wealthy. He runs with very wealthy people. He sees a chance to make a lot of money and tries to bring close friends and associates into that opportunity. The defense may be trying to set up the fact that Mr. Mosley is the person who provided information to these investors. And therefore, Elizabeth Holmes cannot be responsible for that misinformation because that came from Mr. Mosley. Wade referenced the first time Mosley met Elizabeth at a private conference also attended by the Waltons and representatives for the DeVos family. Is that sort of a Woodstock for private family offices, if you will? Wade asked. Mosley said that wasn't how he would describe it, but agreed it was, as Wade put it, for the most part, high net worth individuals. And many of those high net worth individuals were Mosley's clients. Wade displayed a sort of flow chart at court, showing the prominent families on one side with their connections to Mosley and how many millions each came to invest in Theranos. 
Wade also spent significant time on the document Mosley put together for Dr. Kissinger, reminding jurors no one at Theranos, including Elizabeth, reviewed the memo. For example, Mosley had written Theranos had the ability to run a vast number of tests with only a few drops of blood requiring just a finger prick. Wade pointed out that Theranos publicly claimed their tests were either taken from a tiny finger stick or a microsample taken from traditional methods. You understood that there were some tests that Theranos couldn't perform on a finger stick, right? Wade questioned. I didn't know that at the time, Mosley replied. Professor Kreitzberg says although Mosley communicated information to Dr. Kissinger about Theranos, it doesn't necessarily absolve Elizabeth. So they're going to try and use him as an intervening factor, that he's the one that if there was any misinformation passed on, he's the one who passed it on. The problem with that is it certainly doesn't negate any of the misrepresentations Elizabeth Holmes made to Mr. Mosley. And also if he in that memo drew upon that same information that was provided to him and didn't embellish it, then there's no reason to think that it's a defense that he's the one that happened to forward it on. Wade then turned his attention to the investment. You understand generally that investments come with risk, right? Absolutely, Mosley answered. You knew this was a young company, right? Wade asked. And you knew it had a young CEO. Yes, I did, Mosley replied. And you knew that Theranos itself did not have a lot of retail experience. And that as a result, that this was one of those companies that had a fair amount of risk. You could lose all your money, right? Mosley responded, it certainly had risk and it was certainly possible to lose all your money, yes. Finally, Wade addressed the Pfizer document as though it might've been Mosley's job to double check whether it actually came from the pharma company or Theranos. Okay, and you never went back and sought any clarification on who actually drafted the report from Theranos, correct? I did not, Mosley responded. While the exchanges reinforced patterns in the defense's argument and included compelling details, Professor Kreitzberg reminds the real question jurors must answer is not what Mosley and others might have failed to do, but what Elizabeth knew and chose to do. The defense cross-examination seems to spend an extraordinary amount of time, sometimes almost their whole cross-examination, focusing on what the particular investor didn't do. They didn't verify certain information. They didn't check with the pharmaceutical companies. They never called the CEO at Walgreens to find out the nature of their contract. They didn't investigate the financials. And it seems to suggest that their failure to take that kind of information, to do the due diligence, as it's called, would be a defense to these charges. The court has been telling us over and over again and reiterated this week that blaming the victim, in other words, saying these victims, these investors, did not exercise due diligence is not a defense to these charges in the indictment. We have to keep turning back to look at what did Elizabeth Holmes know? What did she represent to these investors? And for what purpose did she do it? Hey, this is Brad Milkey. I host ABC's daily news podcast, Start Here. The dropout will be back in a minute. But first. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. 
If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to invite you to start your day with us. Every morning on Start Here, we dive deep into the biggest news stories with some of the best journalists in the world. It's smart, it's relevant, and maybe most importantly for you, it's quick. Again, that's Start Here, the daily podcast from ABC News. Available wherever you listen. Nearly a decade before Dan Mosley came along and helped Elizabeth Holmes gain access to his prestigious circle of high net worth connections, Don Lucas the prolific Silicon Valley investor known for backing Oracle's Larry Ellison was in her corner. Lucas, like Mosley, saw great potential in Elizabeth from their very first meeting. Here's how he described it to an interviewer in 2009. This young lady comes in, I think she probably was 21 years old and it left Stanford, didn't graduate. She had a company called Theranos. And I thought this was gonna be a short conversation. Well, she was looking for help and money. Maybe more money than help. Anyway, she got both, whether she wanted it or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of 20 minutes, we spent two or three hours talking. So I got interested, raised some money, and uh, we're still at it. And, and uh, the company's growing quite rapidly and successfully. And it didn't bother him that Elizabeth, a recent Stanford dropout, had bold ideas but limited experience. She did, had no background in business. And so that, that's quite presumptuous for somebody. So I'm going to be president of the government, but there's an important distinction. And that's what I uh, felt uh, when I met her. And, and then after spending a lot more time with her, her great-grandfather was an entrepreneur. So that was one side. That's the entrepreneurial side, but she was in the medical side. Ah, it turns out later, her, the hospital in there where they lived is named after her great-uncle. So she came by both of these, the two things that are necessary here, one medicine and the other entrepreneur, quite naturally. She was attractive too. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Much like Mosley, Lucas opened doors for Elizabeth, introducing her to his influential friends and family, just as she was getting her company off the ground. One of those people was Lucas's nephew, Chris Lucas, who also took the stand last week. Chris Lucas testified that he learned about Theranos from his uncle Don in 2005. And by the end of 2006, Chris Lucas, who we'll call by his last name from here on, and his fund, Black Diamond Ventures, had invested over $4.4 million with the young startup. Lucas also connected Elizabeth to the Hall Group, which you heard in the last episode invested $7 million with Theranos. Lucas explained to the court that when he first met Elizabeth, he understood this was still early stage investing, 
you take a shot. And if it all worked out, wonderful. And if they're not able to develop the technology, you took your chance and you move on, he said. According to Lucas, at the time of his initial investments in Theranos, he believed the company's technology was beyond a drawing on a napkin, but he also knew it was not fully functional and developed. Lucas testified that over time, he came to rely on Elizabeth as his main source of information about the company. He said he got to know Elizabeth quite well, and whenever he was in the Bay Area, they'd meet for lunch or dinner. Many of Prosecutor Bostick's questions to Lucas mirrored what he'd asked Dan Mosley. How Lucas learned about Theranos. Who told him what? What he was led to believe about Theranos' relationships with the military and Big Pharma. Lucas recounted his many conversations and exchanges with Elizabeth. Then, the prosecution homed in on one particular email. On September 7, 2013, Elizabeth wrote, I am delighted to share that we have now begun the commercial launch of the new products and services we've been working on for the past years. This email meant the company was finally going live at Walgreens. Lucas told jurors how exciting that moment was. This is what you would hope for in investing in a company that had worked so hard to get to this point, he told the court. A few months later, in December 2013, Lucas received another email from Theranos with more good news. With our launch to consumer healthcare this year, we are rapidly scaling, it read. Then it went on to offer shareholders the chance to invest more money with the company. There was just one caveat. They had just two weeks to close. Lucas and his team raced to meet the deadline. I felt this was important to invest and for our group to invest, and so we worked to get it done, and it took a lot of extra hours, Lucas told the court. As part of the process, Lucas arranged a call with Elizabeth and investors on December 20th, 2013. So maybe, Chris, let me pause there and just see We played portions of that call for you in last week's episode. Um, Elizabeth, just as, as, you know, as an observation, when you published your prices on the website that are significantly, clearly lower than, than what typically labs charge, how does that strategy evolve and as it relates to Medicaid or Medicare and so forth? Absolutely. So there's there's multiple aspects of this. One is our belief that access to this laboratory information is a basic human right. And it should cost the same no matter who you are. No oh, good. Thank you, Elizabeth. After the call, Lucas told Elizabeth there was significant interest in participating in the round, but he asked if there was any flexibility around pushing the deadline. There wasn't. Despite what were still some lingering questions about Theranos' finances, on New Year's Eve, Lucas wired approximately $5.4 million to the company. Lucas said at the time, he believed Theranos' device could run a high percentage of the most common blood tests. Lucas told the court he had no idea the actual number of tests at the very peak of Theranos' performance was just 12. His near-decade-long relationship with Elizabeth gave him confidence. But so did the stage of the investment. Lucas saw this round differently than when he took a chance back in 2006. Now, Theranos had been in business for years and as a result, had a much lower risk profile in his view. He wasn't betting on whether the company would survive. It was now a matter of how much the company might thrive. As venture capitalist Ethan Kurtzweil explains, 
Theranos was essentially leapfrogging over an important stage of investing, the part when private companies invite sophisticated investors with expertise in areas like biotech to do a deeper dive and validate the product. I think you can broadly summarize it into three big buckets. The first is sort of the angel or seed stage. In that case, it's really just about evaluating is the idea, if it's made to work, a big idea. And I think in the Theranos case, almost certainly it is. And then the next phase of an angel investment is like, is this person able to possibly deliver on it? Do you think there's a one in 10 shot they'll be able to get this done? Then you get to the, usually what you'd call kind of the series A and B, early stage venture world. That's what I do. Usually something's built at that point or, or, or the technology's been validated in some way. It may not be perfect, but it, it can do something that it purports to do. But testing that, that requires a little more you know, expertise and really digging under the covers. And then you have growth investing. And that's where you get the 50 to $100 million checks. What was a red flag is that she never had anybody else that really understood what she was doing. Lucas, who'd started as an angel investor, was now being offered a chance to participate in phase three, given his longstanding relationship with Elizabeth. Soon, Dan Mosley's money, as well as millions from his circle of high net worth friends would follow, along with glowing publicity for Elizabeth and her company, including that Fortune magazine profile, which Elizabeth sent to Chris Lucas. As Lucas testified, at the time, he felt very proud of Elizabeth for all of her accomplishments. Just like the government, the defense relied on many common themes in its cross-examination of Chris Lucas. Attorney Kevin Downey emphasized how young Elizabeth was when she and Lucas first met. Downey contrasted Lucas's experience. This was your life's work. You're a venture capitalist. With Elizabeth's inexperience. Downey reminded Lucas that he even apparently helped Elizabeth prepare financial models in 2007 when the company was in its infancy. At one point, Downey got a little playful with Lucas, discussing the sometimes longer than hoped for times it can take to get new technology off the ground. Companies often assess that the process will take a shorter period of time than it does, correct? Downey asked. Yes, it's generally longer, said Lucas. It's a little bit like renovating your kitchen. It takes longer and it costs more than you think, asked Downey. That's particularly relevant to me right now, actually, Lucas replied. The courtroom erupted in laughter. Just as the defense did with Dan Mosley, Downey focused on Lucas as a connector, someone who brought new investors to the table and earned commissions on their investments. Downey drove home the familiar theme Lucas, with his years of experience, should have known the risks. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? 
In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. We've seen both the prosecution and defense lay out themes the jury can quickly identify. With the government's other key witness this week, we see how this pattern making was applied to pharmaceutical companies as well. After last week's bombshell testimony regarding a doctored Pfizer document, the prosecution called scientist Constance Cullen to the stand. Dr. Cullen worked for the pharmaceutical giant Shearing Plow. Back in 2009, she was tasked with evaluating Theranos' technology. And like Pfizer, she wasn't impressed with what she saw. I asked a lot of questions, Dr. Cullen testified, but the answers were not forthcoming. There was insufficient technical detail. Instead of the clear, direct answers she was expecting, Dr. Cullen received what she described as cagey responses. After Dr. Cullen testified that Shearing Plow neither validated Theranos' technology nor had any further contact with them after 2009, Prosecutor Shank pulled a move reminiscent of last week's side-by-side Pfizer document reveal. This time, he showed two documents related to Shearing Plow. A validation report originally sent by Theranos to Shearing Plow with Theranos' own conclusions about its technology and a second identical report with the Shearing Plow logo emblazoned in the left-hand corner. This is a damning recurrence, according to law professor Ellen Kreitzberg. Suddenly this week, we now are seeing that Theranos did the same doctoring on a report with Shearing Plow. We now have a second pharmaceutical company whose logo is being put on the cover of a report without it being authorized, without the company verifying it, and without the company accepting the contents of the report. The defense might have been able to wiggle their way out of one of the reports, but now that there's two of them, that's a hard battle for them to contest. Just as Pfizer scientists had vociferously denied validating any of the claims, Dr. Collins said neither she nor Shearing Plow had endorsed the claims in the document with the Shearing logo. And just as the prosecution showed that Elizabeth had included the doctored Pfizer report to investors, they showed that the fraudulent Shearing Plow report had been included in information given to investors as well. Theranos claimed boldly that it was one of three independent due diligence reports on Theranos systems that had been corroborated after the pharmaceutical company's own technical validation and experience with Theranos systems in the field. When Elizabeth was questioned about this in her SEC deposition, she characteristically remembered very little. Were you aware in 2014 and 2015 that these reports were being included in investor materials? I think so. Why did she label this section of the binder exemplary reports from pharmaceutical partners? I, I don't know that I personally labeled it. Were you ever concerned that the title and the fact that these reports were included in the binder would give the impression to potential investors that these pharmaceutical companies had drafted these reports and that Theranos had not drafted them? No. Venture capitalist Ethan Kurzweil says that while investors might be faulted for not verifying such documents, the onus is still on Theranos. 
I would never think to check that. No one would. That's that's just outright deception. It definitely reveals a lack of thorough due diligence, but it's still fraud. I mean, you, you, you would assume that somebody's giving you a, a document where it's effectively quoting a company's take on something that that, that is what that company's take is. In the brief cross-examination, defense attorney John Klein challenged Dr. Cullen for not raising any of her concerns about Theranos' original 2009 validation report directly with the company or Elizabeth. You did not voice those concerns to Ms. Holmes or to Theranos out of politeness or awkwardness or some reason like that, correct? Klein asked. Correct, Dr. Cullen answered. You voiced them to your colleagues, but not to Theranos. Correct, Dr. Cullen answered. You just didn't respond at all in the end, right? Klein asked. That's correct, Dr. Cullen said. But conspicuously absent from Klein's cross-examination was any mention of the doctor document. Instead, just as they did with Pfizer, the defense completely avoided the topic. That image speaks louder than words as asserting this was approved by Shearing Plow. When a jury looks at that, that's easy to understand. They didn't have permission to put that on. That's powerful for the government in this case. So where do these patterns leave us? The prosecution with each witness has reinforced that there was misinformation. Not one, but two doctored documents. The same stories repeated over and over again by a growing list of investors, executives, and board members, with Elizabeth in the lead. And yet, the defense continues to hammer home the idea that these highly sophisticated individuals, the alleged victims, are somehow to blame. They missed opportunities to follow up. They might have been misled, but should have known better. That 19-year-old Elizabeth was just trying to do her best, even though none of those arguments disprove what Elizabeth is alleged to have done. So at this point, what is the defense's strategy? Here's Ellen Kreitzberg. <laughs> to get a mistrial? Specifically, what's happening is they're eliciting all the failure on the part of the company to engage in due diligence, which is just another way of letting the jury know what these kind of companies usually do, how they usually investigate, how they usually look into opportunities to invest. And they're going to portray Elizabeth Holmes as a young, even somewhat naive person who her focus was on the science and the ability to make these tests happen. And she assumed all these investors would take all their power and resources and staff to check out information that she didn't believe or intend for anything she said to be a basis to defraud them. She didn't believe that would have been possible. And that may be what they're gonna try and argue. Now it's only a matter of weeks before we see how successful that strategy might be. Next week, we'll hear from two lab directors, including Lynette Sawyer, who served alongside Sonny's dermatologist of 15 years, though the two testified they had never heard of one another. She left after six months, after becoming uncomfortable with the lack of clarity about the lab. Tune in next Tuesday for that. Elizabeth Holmes and Sunny Belwani did not respond or decline to comment for this podcast. 
Some material, including court depositions, were edited for clarity and time. The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on Trial is written and reported by Victoria Thompson, Taylor Dunn, and me. Victoria is the executive producer. Taylor and I are producers. For ABC Audio, Susie Liu is producer and Madeline Wood and Marwa Mwaki are associate producers. Dia Athen and Miles Cohen are our court producers. For ABC's business unit, our associate producer is Victor Ordonez and our production assistant is Lane Wynn. Mixing and scoring is by Susie Liu and Evan Viola. Evan also composed the music for The Dropout. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY and Cedric Honstad. For ABC Audio, Liz Alessi is executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ian Rosenberg, Eric Avram, and Stacia Deshishku. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.